how come I got to get induced? Honey, it happens all the time, Joel says. Yeah, but why me, Holly? You're two weeks late. What's wrong with me that I got to get jump-started like some crummy old truck? You're supposed to give birth. Yeah. Just give it. Can I do that? Apparently not true. Oh, Shelly, there's nothing wrong with you. You're perfectly normal. Unless maybe it's not me at all. Unless maybe it's the kid. Maybe it doesn't want to come out. Maybe it knows something I don't know, because it's somebody in there, you know? All the mom mags say it. 80% of its little who it is is already who. And who knows who that even is? It's finally happening. Shelly Marie Tambo is going to give birth. It's induced labor, so we know it's happening this episode. Unless they do like a weird like two-parter, but Charles, we've already watched the episode in question today. So we know that this is the episode where um, Shelly, who has been pregnant for, gosh, has it been like, I know it was last season, but was she pregnant in the third season? Yeah, I want to say, wait, hmm. Wait, yeah, because, oh, wait, no, 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 because it's at the end of the fourth season when she starts singing, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. So I want to say maybe not. Yeah, yeah, I think it's just from the fourth season. Yeah, that, that, that sounds right, actually. I think I can remember the episode when Holling is like pulling the plow and there's all these metaphors between growing crops and childbirth, growing a human perhaps. Um, yeah, Charles, we're here. Are you ready for this uh, childbirth? Yeah, uh, those are always really fun episodes, <laughs> I feel. Because, I mean, they're never they're never disgraceful. Like, they're always, like, uh, respectful toward the entire process. It's yeah, never, like, it's always, like, a never very, like, almost overly profound moment, you know? <laughs> in the series. I know. Well, all right. Before we get too far, Charles, what is it that we're talking about? Okay. So what we're talking about here is Northern Exposure, 1990 CBS television series sitcom. My name is Charles, and I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee. My name is Lee. I've seen this show a couple times. I'm a big fan of Northern Exposure. But Charles, this is your first time watching each episode. So you sort of have a fresh take, or I don't know, you you have the you can be surprised by uh, each new episode. But, I mean, we're in season five now, so you've kind of gotten the hang of the series. However, I mean, it is a very kooky show, so weird stuff will happen. Uh, this episode that we're talking about today, not the most, like, supernatural or mystical episode, but uh, it is a big, important one. As we said, Shelley gives birth in this episode. Let's see, can I just run down the credits for you? Yeah. All right, so the episode is called Hello, I Love You. It is season five, episode 15. Hello, I love you. Um, actually, I didn't do any research into like the, that, that title. Maybe we can talk about what it means as we um, get closer, uh, more into the episode. But uh, anyway, Hello, I love you is the title of the episode. The director is Michael Fresco, who we will know from Dateline Sicily back in season three, um, the Thanksgiving episode, Old Tree. And then in this season, The Mystery of the Old Curio Shop, Rosebud and Mr. Sandman. And again, now, hello, I love you. So he's gotten a lot of play now in season five as a director. The writers, Mitchell Burgess and Robin Green, who will, of course, later go on to work with David Chase in The Sopranos. They have lots of writing credits as well. I'll just go ahead and list them from <laughs> uh, the episodes of Northern Exposure that they worked on. The first one was Things Become Extinct. Then we've got Three Amigos, Gross Point 48230, The Big Feast, 
Sleeping with the Enemy, Jaws of Life, that's uh, season five now, Birds of a Feather, A Cup of Joe. So again, they've been working a lot in season five as well. Uh, This particular pair, they write very often together, but they also have their own sort of like solo credits on some episodes of Northern Exposure, and they do write with other writers as well. It's just um, more often than not, they're writing together. Finally, the air date of this episode, January 31st, 1994. Charles, I'm going to keep talking just a little bit more because typically from here, we'll go into the very first scene of the episode. But uh, there is a deleted scene in this episode, and I'm pretty sure it was supposed to go first before it was deleted. And I almost wonder, maybe they deleted it and reshot a new intro. But the deleted scene that I'm talking about is very much like the soundbite that we played at the beginning of this episode where Shelley is talking to Holling about um, very expositional dialogue, like I've got to do this induced labor now because the baby, you know, it's been, I think she's two weeks overdue. I don't know if she says that in the opening soundbite, but in the deleted scene that I'm speaking of, it's between Joel and Shelley and Holling. And Shelley is getting a checkup in sort of the doctor's examining room. Holling is also in the room as well. Joel reports that all is good, but there's no signs of labor. Uh, and he suggests an induced labor in this deleted scene. He says it's a very common procedure, not something you should feel bad about. But as we see with that opening soundbite that we played, she's got a lot of um, guilt almost, or a lot of shame maybe, that she's going to have to do this induced labor. But in this deleted scene, Joel says the pregnancy is past term. It's two weeks Um, Shelly corrects him in the deleted scene. She says it's two weeks tomorrow, but still, you know, 13 days will be 14 days past term. So that's our deleted scene up front. You can catch that on the, um, on the DVD if you have the DVD copies, but Charles, what is the actual opening of this episode that we get? you know, broadcast. Yeah, it's Chris at K-Bear. He's giving off another address right here. And he's basically setting up the entire tone as well that Shelly is going to have a baby. He's saying that there's 843 people now in Sicily that are all going to be there. And Marilyn is going to be hosting a workshop of sorts. It's going to be making like a booty, like uh, (laughs) some sort of like uh I'm aware of what like a beauty is and like the abstract sense, but like I know it's something for like babies that they wear. I'm guessing so when we actually see it, because we do see this um, sort of like a knitting class that that Marilyn is hosting. Mm-hmm. When we actually see the booty, it doesn't look like a little boot that a, that a little toddler would wear. I'm guessing that's what a booty is, right? It's like a little shoe that they wear or am I completely wrong? Uh, I'm guessing. <laughs> it doesn't look like that whenever they hold it up. It kind of looks like just like a piece of uh, knitted I don't know, like a sort of piece of fabric or uh, we're, we're showing our ignorance here. But um, yeah, Marilyn is teaching a knitting class. And as you said, Shelly's going to have, have her delivery very soon, deliver the baby, give birth. I like the energetic opening here. It's, it's very quick moving. Like I think Chris sort of like dives into frame as he, you know, talks onto the mic in K-Bear. There's very energetic almost kind of like swing drumming. Like sounds like the intro to that Benny Goodman song, Sing, 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 with like the floor tom doing like that sort of like swing intro. And um, I guess I can see this is a much more energetic version than the deleted scene that I described. So maybe, I don't know, I have a theory, a pet theory that maybe 
they cut that scene and reshot some things. But it's also entirely possible that just the deleted scene doesn't really work. It it doesn't fit in the beginning and maybe it's superfluous, like it's just telling the same information twice. So I can see why we don't have that deleted scene. We get the same information after this uh, K-Bear announcement that Chris is doing is the um, the opening soundbite that we played. You want to talk about that scene? Yeah, it's also, again, setting up the tone like you were talking about of Shelly giving birth, how they need to wait, how the baby isn't coming out and everything. And I think the interesting thing about the scene is the very ending line that's happening, which is where Shelly says that 80% of its little who it is is already who. And it's a neat little wordplay, but it's also establishing the idea of like, you're already decided who you are before you even come out. So it's like a predetermined fate Mm. is what's happening here with this baby. And what its gender is, what its um, interests are, what it's going to do in its life, which is really interesting because as we see later in this episode, we actually see the baby grow mm-hmm. up in a sort of like future time travel sense. Yeah. And these roles, assumingly, are already determined because we're seeing them at each pivotal moment, uh, assuming that like... I don't want to get too deep into the timeline <laughs> stuff. I really don't like talking about time travel, but like I'm assuming like the timeline is not being broken. Like this is this is fated to happen. Yeah, it's so, like I see what you're saying. It's like predetermined and this this quote that you just pulled sort of underlines it's sort of setting up that idea which will be exemplified throughout the episode. I said this is not a very supernatural or mystical episode, but yeah, I forgot there's kind of this weird um, the laundromat becomes a time machine in this episode. Yeah. Is that not, <laughs> hang on. Isn't that like a title of something already? Ooh, like the time traveling laundromat or something. Uh, like, uh, no, it's that, it's that one from like the two early 2010. Primer? Late. No, 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 no. It's not a serious. Hot tub time like machine. A, yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Like a uh, spin hot machine wash uh <laughs> maybe maybe that's why they've been setting up this laundromat this entire season it's like they introduce if, it. yeah what if there's like a whole you know I, I already know that this isn't true but the rest of the series is like now the laundromat has time traveling powers that each yeah. character will experience like they're like five. really they're like you know sizzly is already a special place why don't we make it like seriously special like it possesses a there's time traveling laundromat northern exposure um multiverse it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, but yeah, that's pretty much that scene. I did want to say I liked I also like that quote that you pulled. It goes on a little longer. I want to read the full quote because it's sort of a mouthful. It's it's funny to say. Shelley says, 80% of its little who it is is already who. And who knows who that even is? So you know, a lot of sort of reflexive spinning around the words and a uh, bit a bit of a bit of a mouthful. But the next scene. Um, Maggie is delivering Joel his New York Times uh, newspapers, and he remarks that, you know, this couldn't have come at a better time. He doesn't really have any appointments on the calendar today. Maybe it's because of the bitter cold, I think he suggests. Like, it's starting to get very cold now. People just don't want to go out and show up to the doctor's office. But um, Maggie uh, ends up sort of like suggesting a date or something, you know, because they're both pretty free today. And um, let's see, she suggests, you know, taking a flight out into nature. She um, suggests uh, some sort of like 
natural landmark uh, they could fly over and check out. Joel instead suggests a basketball game on TV. Of course, like we have, you know, Maggie has her interests. Joel has his. It's not really aligning. Marilyn, I think, comes in to save the day and she invites them to her knitting class. Yeah, I think uh, I like that it keeps the characterization of Joel liking basketball right here. (laughs) Um, Because we knew that from like earlier seasons. Yeah. Like he would always, he was always concerned with like the Knicks or getting uh, tickets for, what was the team that played yeah, there in was, um, Maggie's hometown? Yeah, in Gross Point, he actually, he gets tickets to a game and it's a real, it was like a real life game. You could um, go back in the calendar and see that. He's also like a basketball coach in Midnight Sun, I think is the name of the episode. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. And there's scenes where he's playing basketball with like Chris and Bernard. Oh, it's probably that episode. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's true. He does. Not only are those episodes sort of focused on his love of basketball, but, um, you know, he does just mention basketball offhand and plenty of episodes. Okay. So this is where we're going to diverge on the plot lines pretty much. I know we haven't gotten to the very last one, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be between Ruth Ann and Walt. But yeah, essentially there are three plot lines, Joel and Maggie, Ruth Ann and Walt, and Shelly and her birth. So I'm assuming that we're keeping Shelly and her birth as the last one. Yeah. So that's like the big one. It's pretty, pretty powerful one. Okay. Yeah. So where do you want to go between the two other plot lines? Let's do Maggie and Joel, maybe. I feel like that's a pretty easy one to, um, to uh, sort of self-contained. Yeah. Okay. The next thing that's going to feature Joe and Maggie is going to be at Marilyn's little workshop where they're knitting up the booties. And we see it like there's a large assortment of townsfolk there. Yeah. They're all wanting to chip in and help Shelly out. But the important thing that's happening here is that Maggie, who you would assume based off of like preconceived biases and gender norms, would be the one that's more talented at knitting. You wouldn't assume that Joel would be the better one, but it turns out that he is. He's kind of bucking a gender role right here by besting Maggie. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's kind of clear in the scene that Maggie has done this before. She has like some experience with knitting because just from the way she's talking about it, Joel, on the other hand, is very sort of like a newbie to this and, you know, kind of like a little nervous about it, very um, meticulous and... Uh, yeah, as you said, Joel makes a better booty. According to Marilyn, she Marilyn compliments Maggie's booty. Like she says, it's a pretty good one. And then she sees Joel's and she really likes it. You know, at first it's kind of hard to read because it's Marilyn and we can't really read her uh, excitement, but she says it, um, you know, it's perfect. I believe she says it's perfect. Um, but at the very least, she says she makes an example for the entire class. She's like, uh, everyone, as you leave today, make sure you stop and take a look at this beauty, referring to um, to Joel's creation here. So he's very proud of himself. And I don't know if you caught this, Charles, but I was beginning to sense that maybe this was a plot line about sort of maybe a competition or a competitive nature between Joel and Maggie. Uh, I wasn't like certain, but obviously as the episode rolls out, we can see that there is a bit of competition, competitiveness between the two. Yeah, I didn't get that initially. I thought that honestly it was going to go toward more of a gender role uh, thing mm-hmm. because the other plot lines were kind of backing that up. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that competitiveness also works. And I, I mean, obviously they spell it out for us as well, you know, at the end of the episode right there. My thing about that, though, is that 
I don't actually think that they even say like a statement on it. Like it, it sort of like breaks it, but then it like reverts back to the status quo. It, it's <laughs> what I'm saying is going to make more sense once we talk about the other plot lines, which is why I'm hesitant to bring this up because I'm not entirely too sure. It seems like maybe I'm digging a little bit too deep into here, but mm. it, it's it's also like it it coincidentally happens to fit in to the environment. Okay. Well, hmm. I have, I'm not sure. I'm interested to see what you've got, but yeah, I, I do. Uh, I think I can, I think I understand because the, the way this plot line resolves and we'll get there, but it's kind of just like, yeah, they're, they're just kind of reverting back to, you know, that they, they, they recognize this, this competitiveness between them and it's, uh, you know, they don't like necessarily like ended or anything, but they're cool with each other. They've leveled with each other. They sort of recognize this and are able to move forward with, um, with the rest of the episode. I guess we'll see their relationship after this, but I guess we'll get there. That's, that's, um, the end of their plot line. But if we're going chronologically after this booty scene, I believe the next time we see Joel and Maggie is, um, Joel is breaking up his firewood. He's doing it in a very unique way. He is <laughs> taking his truck and backing it over, you know, driving it over this bundle of firewood just to like snap it and break it into smaller pieces. And Maggie drives up um, alongside him. And she's like, hey, is something wrong with your car, Flashman? And he has to explain to her, no, this is this is how I do it. This is how I break my firewood. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Maggie then takes out a chainsaw and she says, like, no, 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 let me let me show you. Like, it's going to be a lot easier if I start cutting up with here, which, again, if we're going to go down that direction of uh, painting things in a general role lens, uh, chopping up wood with a chainsaw, you right. you might think that that might be a more male dominated thing. Uh, but it's actually Maggie that's doing that. She's the one cutting up the logs for Joel, who initially was just using his car, like you said. Yeah, I was actually kind of worried in this scene because uh, I know we've both seen Boyhood, that Richard Linklater film. Right. But I thought there was like an injury that was about to happen <laughs> here, which is the same thing that happens in Boyhood where you're watching these um, these kids play around with also like a chainsaw of some sort. It's like some sort of um, sharp metal object. You're obviously not <laughs> supposed to be playing with it. They're like... Uh, I think they're taking like a blade, like the chainsaw blade, and they're throwing it against uh, a block of wood. Oh, this is like, they're at like a construction site or something. Yeah. I'm trying to and remember. It must be like a circular saw disc or something. Is that what Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And you think that something's going to happen to them because like, why else are they showing this scene? But no, nothing happens. They don't get like a <laughs> thumb nicked or anything like that. And I thought, I was getting wary when I was watching this scene too. Yeah. Because Joel was telling her, it's like, hey, you need to be careful and everything. Yeah. Well, Joel's like, nah, I, I like my way. Like, don't, you know, it's, I, I'm I'm with you too. Because I thought, <laughs> I also thought something bad was about to happen because Joel seems so stressed by this. And he, we even go into like a close up of Joel, like eyeing this process and Maggie cutting the wood. And it's, we kind of get the whole process of Maggie cutting. Like there's, they don't like edit away. I mean, they don't cut it down at least. Like we see her actually like chop through a bunch of wood. Uh, Janine Turner, you know, operating this chainsaw uh, pretty, pretty flawlessly. Um, but she's like, see, you know, this is, uh, this is easier. It's uh, saves you time. Your ends are all nice and neat. But Joel obviously is a little disturbed by this. I was confused by this scene a little bit, but I guess it 
falls into what we said earlier, this sort of competitive nature. Joel is maybe upset that that Maggie showed him up. But also, I just want to circle back to what you said, how it's interesting that Maggie is sort of besting Joel at something that's more, maybe more typically assigned to masculinity. It's like, you know, breaking up your firewood. And Joel in the previous scene is um, besting Maggie and something that's maybe more feminine assigned. But um, but yeah, I don't know if that really plays out. It's uh, Yeah, I don't know if we talked about this already. Uh, it might have slipped my mind. But I like when, uh, before they go to the workshop and Maggie's asking Joel if he wants to go, Joel has to say like, hey, I don't think that like my masculinity is being threatened right. if I yeah. go and knit. And I was like, go, 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 Joel. Yeah. You know, go. What a what a positive and great outlook. I think that even if this plot line isn't like ultimately about gender roles, I think it's definitely that's there. That's in each of these scenes so far, at least. So like the writers knew what they were writing. Um, ultimately, the payoff and whatever deals with competitiveness between their, um, in this relationship and how that's like sort of like dismantling the relationship. So it's more about that. But I think the elements that we see so far are sort of coded with this gender, gender roles throughout. But the next scene we get with Maggie and Joel, Maggie and Joel are having dinner. Maggie made lamb and Joel... Uh, he's very excited. He says, let's see. Wow. Smell that. Finugrek, which I think is fin- Finugreek. I actually don't know how to pronounce it, but he's, he pronounces it Finugrek. And Maggie corrects him. Well, actually, it's cardamom. And uh, Joel's like, wow, you actually made your own chapatis? She says, no, actually, it's um, parathas. But they're basically the same thing. So she's like correcting him and sort of I guess what is supposed to be happening here is in a way it's like putting Joel down and Maggie is in the right. Though Joel does kind of swing around. They start talking about like ulcers or something. Do you remember that? Yeah. Maggie says that one of her relatives got an ulcer from eating like uh, some sort of like, uh, I think it's curry, I want to say. Yeah. Some sort of spicy food. And Joel's like, no, 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 you can't get it because of like X reason. Let me explain why. (laughs) And he goes down the list. And again, we're just seeing like another disagreement between them where they're not really seeing things eye to eye, but ultimately they're very trivial. Like Maggie says, they're pretty much the same. So all of these things, all all of these arguments aren't really much. Though, uh, the thing that I I wish they would have actually talked about a little bit more or at least demonstrated was that like, I, I feel like these arguments are kind of like easy to diffuse though. Right. Or like maybe yeah. they just wanted to write it in this manner. But like, I don't know. I, I thought they would have taken this one step further. Like I thought by this scene, they would have addressed the competitiveness and then we would move forward on how this plot would resolve. Because ultimately this kind of stays the course for a while until like the baby is born and then their perspectives are shifts. It's not a bad way to have the resolution, but I thought that they were going to have more to say on this. Yeah. Because it seems like it's, it's kind of like a, a one-tone uh, story. Well, I didn't want to go too far ahead yet, but I, I think I see what you're saying. Is like, I think you were expecting more of a um, sort of a, a larger confrontation and a fallout. Well, really... You know, there is there is sort of mild versions of that in this episode, but it's pretty tame. As you're saying, like these sort of arguments, you'd think they'd be able to resolve them pretty 
pretty easily. And I think actually in this scene, it's like, I wrote down in my notes in the scene at dinner, it's like, it seems like there's maybe a little bit of one-upsmanship at work here. But immediately as I was writing that, I also noticed, oh, but they're like, they're smiling and they're pretty, like they're still having a good time. So it's not a huge deal. But um, I, I, I agree with you, Charles. It might have been a little more um, powerful if there was a bigger fallout after like a bigger argument or something. But I like that the climax I for me of this plot line is just sort of like a healthy acknowledgement of like, wow, like, um, well, let's see. When is that scene? Are we almost there? Is it the next? No. Oh, we have one more. Yeah. We have a scene where Maggie goes to Ann's store, which is being attended to by Ed in her absence. And... Ed is kind of just chatting with her uh, like it's a regular conversation and Maggie uh, kind of spills her guts and says like, oh, gosh, see, this is like a normal conversation. We don't have to <laughs> argue and get into things. I'm a pleasant individual. We can do this. And it's just serving the point of like Maggie is becoming frustrated at the competitiveness. Yeah, she she she's trying to find the right word to describe it. But at the end of the scene, she says it just goes wrong. Like she can't find the word competitive, combative, which is brought up in that, in the scene that we're about to get to. Um, that That's what she's feeling, but she doesn't know how to describe it. She just knows it's like something that's a little off in their relationship. Again, it's not a huge deal. As you said, Charles, it's like something that they, you know, they should be able to resolve pretty, pretty easily. But I just don't think they understand what is irking them about each other, I guess. But okay, finally, now are we in the scene where they where they sit down and talk about it. Is that next? Yeah, the, this is the scene where they're picking up the firewood, which is kind of neat because earlier they were cutting the firewood. Mm -hmm. So now they're moving the firewood to their respective trucks and everything. So it's a continuation of that idea. Uh, I guess if we like read into that more, like firewood is obviously used to start fires. Mm. It, it's like a tinder. Yeah. So... There's, okay, so there's so many ways we can move into this. <laughs> like, okay, number one is like, like you, you need, like I said before, like a spark in order to set the firewood ablaze. That could be like conflict. So maybe like their conflict together is what's giving their relationship some sort of power. That I, I don't, I don't really like that reading because ultimately that's actually the thing that's driving them crazy is this conflict. Another thing is that like maybe. If we don't even use that, but we just realize that it's firewood, it's just like a shared item. That idea of shared is something that these two have in common. So like they're always meeting each other to continue this activity. Does that make any sense? Sure. Sorry. Yeah. Like, I'm getting lost in my own cul-de-sac. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, there's a there's a lot of interpretations. I don't I don't know that it needs to necessarily be broken down into symbols, but I think one, now that we're on the topic, another one is just like Fire is passion, like in the in a relationship, and firewood is sort of like the fuel that fuels a relationship. And yeah, I mean, yeah, I see that. It's very everything's very loose, I guess, um, that we're talking about right now. <laughs> but um, but just to continue what we were talking about earlier in this scene, Joel points out as they're stacking the firewood. Joel's helping her to stack the firewood. Joel is talking about how you know he used to do a lot of manual labor when he was young. He would like. He would say, like, you know, I'd, sh I'd shovel the sidewalks. The more you shovel, the quicker you shovel, the more money you make. So he's like, he he realizes and he points this out to Maggie. We're racing each other. 
He's like, I think we do this with everything. Everything between us becomes a competition. It doesn't feel healthy. If somebody wins or somebody loses, who cares? Um, and they, they relate it to these experiences that they've been having in the relationship. I think something's off screen. One that I wrote down that I thought was really funny. Um, they, they mention, you know, who had the fewest old maids. Have you ever played that card game, Old Maid? No. It's kind of like Uno in a way. Or it's like one of those, or like Go Fish style games. Um, but yeah, they even are competitive in this Old Maid game. And Maggie's response in performance, her, her line in response to this uh, Old Maid. We did it the other night when we had popcorn. Remember? And we got all bent as to who had the fewest old maids. <laughs> that was kind of sick. I really like the way she's she's <laughs> just like, yeah, we're we're so screwed up. Like we're just competing over everything. Um, I actually like that this doesn't get dragged out or overblown. It's a very understated, small complication, as you said, Charles. It's like not a huge problem for them, and uh, it's easily recognized here in this scene. And they talk through it. They're going to be okay. You know, it, it's um, it's not a very climactic moment for their relationship, but I, I'm i comforted that it's just like a depiction of a healthy relationship, I guess. Yeah, which gets me thinking, like, you hear about the expression, like, opposites attract. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the people that are like, uh, like, people that are dichotomists are actually really well-fitting in a relationship. Because presumably, where one individual fails, the other one will pick up from. But... Also, it seems like it's kind of exhausting to always argue. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't, I don't think that's like a universally true statement. I think it's more of like, if it works for you, then it works for you. But like, you know, it doesn't always yeah. go that way. It's a, it's a case by case thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, in terms of like, let's say, like, friendship, would you rather have like an opposites attract thing? Like, would you rather get along with somebody that would have a differing view from you, or do you want people to like? constantly have like the same opinion as you um well you need you don't want either i guess but i would favor someone who um someone who i can connect with more on the same opinions um there's this quote from that movie high fidelity do you remember that movie charles with yeah. john cusack he says something like um when it comes to relationships it's about what you like not what you are like which is uh, kind of like, you know, that's a definitely a flawed statement. But um, here, I'll play, I'll play the soundbite. A while back, Dick Barry and I agreed that what really matters is what you like, not what you are like. Books, records, films, these things matter. Call me shallow. It's the f truth. And by this measure, I was having one of the best dates of my life. So John Cusack's character here, he even admits that it's like a shallow, flawed philosophy, but... For him, like he seems to have the most fun when they share a lot of likes. And, you know, that's that's always fun, I think, Charles, to be able to connect with someone on shared interests, you know. So I I guess to answer your question, I would like shared interests over, you know, having a having someone call you out <laughs> all the time. But uh to counter that though, there yeah. is a scene in Five Hundred Days of Summer where Joseph Gordon Levitt's character is playing uh, Wii tennis, like the Nintendo Wii, <laughs> yeah. playing like tennis with his like eight year old. Like she's not eight; she's like ten. She's like right, a precocious yeah. child. She knows more than she should, 
at that age. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt is talking about how wonderful summer is because of their shared interests. He's saying like, oh my God, we talked about like banana fish for like two hours and then we started talking about all these other things. She likes Magritte and hop. And we talked about banana fish for like 20 minutes. It was so compatible, it's insane. She's, no, she's not like I thought at all. She's amazing. Just because some cute girl likes the same bizarro crap you do, that doesn't make her your soulmate. I think that's totally true. I think that just because you meet an individual that, you know, you can talk about shared interests with very passionately doesn't mean that like that translates to romantic language. There's deeper, there's like deeper connections to be made because at first you make those strong connections by uh, just having shared interests. But I guess some people quicker than others can recognize like, I'm not compatible with this person. Like, I don't want to be with this person, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that like, and so we're talking about this because I think that it all culminates into the final scene of between Joel and Maggie, which is that like the, the values that you have are probably more important or like the feeling, the overall feeling that you get for them is going to be the one that matters the most because we'll, we'll talk about this plot line soon, but what happens is that Joel delivers the baby for Shelly and Maggie comes and talks to Joel at the end and says like, you were really great in there. And the important thing is that like, we felt safe when you were there. Like you brought up this aura of safety and that is the important thing in their relationship. It's not whether like they're bickering or they're not seeing eye to eye on things, but more of like the general atmosphere that these two can conjure together. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, I mean, it's simple enough to say like, oh, you make me feel safe. But I think what is more complex that's underlying that is what you said, sort of this atmosphere that Joel creates to make people feel comfortable. But it's not just about Joel. It's what Maggie sees and how Maggie receives that vibe of safety from Joel. So it's sort of a, are you, wait, are you shaking your head? No, no, no I have something to say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> You're like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're completely right. <laughs> this vibe that Joel creates, it's sort of a chemistry, a marriage of feelings that is present. But it's not just from Joel or to Maggie. It's between them, you know, and that's, that is a thing that maybe is hard to put into words. It's not just, you know, what you're doing actively or what you're talking about. But it's that chemistry, I guess. Right. Which makes this like, this is something that's been in the back of my mind that really bothers me. <laughs> uh, and it's just like outside knowledge in that I know that like Joel is not going to be part of Northern Exposure in some way. <laughs> so I know that this isn't going to last. <laughs> and that makes me so angry that I know this because I think that like, in an alternate Northern Exposure universe, this actually works. Yeah. Like, these ending lines from Maggie are really sweet, and it, it, it resolves their problems that they had for, like, four whole seasons of them not seeing eye to eye. You as an audience member could be like, holy crap, this relationship can actually go forward, and it can actually work. But then I know that, it, like, ultimately <laughs> it's not. Like, I'm watching this be like, wow, I can't wait. You know, if I was ignorant, I could be like, hey, man, I can't wait to see how the relationship progress. But like <laughs> every single time I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, where, 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 when are they pulling the plug? Like, when's it going to happen? I know it's happening. I don't know when. 
It's just going to happen. It's going to suck so much because this looks so good. Just savor it now, Charles, because we have it here. And yeah, I mean, you're going to experience what fans of the show, the the heartache that they feel. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it's just going to be anger at that point. Because some people, you know, it's sad to see Joel leave, you know, but then also some people are just like, this is so stupid. Why is this happening? You know, I... The, the the thing that's I want to know the most, and we're going to talk about this whenever we get to the air, to that section, I guess. I'm going to keep this in the back of my mind, but like, I want to map out the, the timeline of when they knew Rob Morrow was going to leave. Because if they knew that Rob Morrow was going to leave by this point, that's messed up for them to write this, this plot line. Yeah, it's kind of hard to say. I even... I guess we could, we should do like a Patreon on this to really dive into it because we danced around it for a while because I was trying to keep this a secret. But, um, you know, there's some reporting, maybe just a little, or maybe I just haven't found out the whole truth yet. But, uh, and I think Rob Morrow has said his own words about it too. But we might be able to pinpoint, as you said, um, when this started happening. A lot of people say like Rob was trying to negotiate a higher salary and he was getting, um, well, well, really Charles, Mike Monroe, I think I've read a lot that Mike Monroe's character was introduced to sort of shaft Joel a bit to make him less of a major character. And that might've been in response to Rob Morrow's, um, I, you know, again, I, I don't know the full story, but we're going to, I guess we're signing ourselves up for a Patreon episode now. But um, <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of like in the West Wing, uh, this is West Wing spoilers, um, Sam Seaborn, who's played by Rob Lowe, yeah. leaves at the end, or not even the end, like halfway through season four. And he was set up to actually be the main character of the West Wing. But what happened was that it turns out that the rest of the cast is like insanely talented. So they were like, holy crap, let's just like write for all of them. We don't have to dedicate the entire show to Rob Lowe, uh, who is yeah. no offense to him he shined the least against them, not because he's like a bad actor, but because the others were so good at acting. Right. Like he appeared to be the worst actor right there. And Rob got paid more at the initial beginnings of West wing. But then when the seasons continued on and it became like a smash hit, the other cast members started negotiating to have a similar salary to Rob Lowe and Rob uh, for reasons beyond my understanding did not like that. He felt like, no, I started off with a higher salary. Therefore, I deserve to have a higher salary as the show continues on. I guess he probably he probably wanted his increase as well. Yeah, basically, it, yeah. it's like really messy. But like right. that's the general gist of what was happening. And I think that like they talk about it with Aaron Sorkin, who was the creator of The West Wing. And I think he said it the best. He said... I think that Rob was getting some bad advice mm. from like his agents or something yeah, yeah. because I don't think that he's like inherently a malicious person. It's just that people were whispering in his ear or like he just wasn't listening to the right people. And so he didn't play his best card forward and that really tripped him up. And that's ultimately what cost him on the role. But the thing that I want to talk about really quickly is that they knew that by like the beginning of season four. Mm-hmm. So they had like 12 to 13 episodes to kind of quietly transition them out from the looks of this. It doesn't appear like they're quietly transitioning well, Rob Morrow out. I could be completely wrong. We're only halfway through. 
So like yeah. maybe by like the next episode, there's like a brand new character. And I'm like, who's this fella? I don't think, <laughs> yeah, I don't think anyone wants, I think, I don't think anyone writing for the show wants Joel to not be in Northern Exposure. I don't think the showrunners necessarily want Joel not to be like, that's a central part. It might, might be agents. It might be um, the networks or whatever, you know, trying to figure this out. But I don't think they're actively trying to um, to slowly write him out at this point, obviously. And also, maybe this will change as we get closer to the sixth season, but Northern Exposure has never been a very serial show. It's been more episodic, sort of like one-offs. I mean, there is obviously overarching narratives, like with Maggie and Joel here. Um, but yeah, I don't think it necessarily operates with sort of like a... Um, an overarching plot. It's kind of one by one. So I take it one step at a time. Um, but yeah, so I'm glad you like that uh, ending. And I think you said some, some great stuff about like where they're at in this relationship. And uh, as I said, just savor it now. We're in, we're in a good, a good spot with Joel and Maggie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I'm no, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. I don't, I don't want to say like, uh, this all means nothing to me. Like, I appreciate what the sentiment that's happening here. I understand that it's like, you know, maybe it was the show's fault. Maybe it's Rob Murrow's fault. I, I have no idea, but like. We will get yeah. to the bottom of it. Oh, and I wanted to say, uh, I put down Michael Samuel's book, but I need to pick it back up because I bet he's got some insight, I would hope. Oh, that's true. Uh, yeah. Michael Samuel, our guest on the first episode of this season, he's got a book called Northern Exposure, A Cultural History. It actually kind of came out like right around the time that episode came out. So hopefully you've got yourself a copy or you've been able to read it. I still got to, I got to pick it back up. <laughs> well, let's jump into the second of the three plot lines. Let's talk about Ruth Ann and Walt, who find themselves in Contwell. Yeah, Contwell, Alaska. It's got like, I mean, I don't know how true this is, but like it has a population of like 200. Wow. It's like, yeah. So that's even <laughs> smaller than Sicily. Yeah, but like 75%. Yeah, that uh, that like downtown area looked pretty lively, but I, we only saw like one scene in Cantwell, which is the first scene here with Ruthann and Walt. They're here in Cantwell to pick up um, some display cases for Ruthann's store. Turns out this guy, let's see, did I get his name? Sandy. This guy, Sandy, is closing up shop in Cantwell, maybe because there's such a small population. He's closing shop and he's moving away and um, he's giving Ruthann his old display cases that he had in his store. And of course, she couldn't pass up this offer. She drove out there with the trailer, this little truck to pick it up, and Walt's going to assist her uh, to, to strap this on and get it back to Sicily. Is this the first time that we see Walt in a substantial role? You know, it might very well be. I mean, I keep pointing out when we see Walt, I'm like, oh yeah, he does become a recurring character. And in this season, he seems to be in small roles in a lot of episodes. Um, but this might be like a kind of like guest starring, you know, supporting, you know, supporting role for Walt. The first supporting role that is maybe. Yeah, I remember him most uh, in that scene where he's sitting outside Joel's office. <laughs> yeah. And he's like eating sunflower seeds. And then they talk about the uh, the weather and like what equipment they need to survive, to survive the, the winter. weather. Yeah. Yeah. Iconic, which I still think is a iconic good, scene. Yeah. I think it's a great scene right there. But yeah, in this particular scene. Walt is talking about like, hey, uh, maybe we can hit up like a steakhouse along the way. And Ruthann says, no, I have my own stuff. I, I want to get back really quickly. So she is one track mind mm -hmm. of 
not realizing what's around her. She just wants to get back home. And Walt wants to take a detour right here. What's really cool in this scene is that Ruth Ann talks about something called uh, Butter Brickle. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying that right? Mm-hmm. Butter Brickle. Do, <laughs> do you know what that is? I did not before this episode. Apparently, it's like a it's an ice cream delicacy. At least that's how it's represented in this episode. But um, you got any experience is, with Butter Brickle? No. So, like, it's not inherently ice cream. It, what it is is that, like, it's small, crunchy pieces of golden brown toffee. Mm. And it's really buttery. It's very sweet tasting. And they like to put it into ice cream. Uh So that's what it is. Uh, I'm very interested in trying it out. That looks like... good, yeah. I know. That seems like right up my alley. I think I would really enjoy that type of stuff. They definitely talk it up in this episode, like Walt and Ruth Ann, because they end up eating some. But yeah, I mean... Maybe it's just our tastes, Charles, but whatever they're saying in the episode, it sounds right up my alley. It's like, I got to try this. I guess maybe it's because it like, it sounds so like retro. It's like <laughs> that peanut <too>. brittle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, I want, I want to taste that. I don't want to taste that new age Gen Z food. The uh, <laughs> Dippin' Dots ice cream <laughs> of the future. You know, what's hilarious is that like, it, that that's advertised as like the ice cream of the future, but that came out in our generation. Right. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what Generation Z would think. Do they still have Dippin' Dots? Like that's a thing that used to be in the mall, but do we even have malls anymore? You know, is Dippin' Dots? Still I, a I don't. I don't know. That's such a good question. I like their website's still up, so they must still distribute Dippin' Dots. That's a fun. That's a fun uh, texture. Dippin' Dots. You like Dippin' Dots? Ah. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last time I had it. I, I want to say the thing I remember the most about Dippin' Dots is that if you eat it with your tongue, yeah, like you just stick your tongue out and like start eating the Dippin' Dots, it starts to resemble just regular ice cream because it melts yeah. into your tongue. You no longer feel like those the, the little tiny ball textures. I like the, if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a long time since I've had it, but because it has all that surface area because it's tiny little pebbles, they sort of stick to your, so you get that sticking oh, sensation. Oh, yeah. But then it, it does. does melt to ice cream. It just turns into normal ice cream. Yeah, like you don't even uh, taste the flavor first. Right. Like it's initially like, when you eat it, you you feel like uh, like brain freeze and then like <laughs> the chocolate flavor melts. And you're like, all right, I feel like I, like I would have had a better experience. I could have just had the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I don't need this uh, sticky. I like the sticky, but yeah, it's like I don't need that. <laughs> Some people. The mass of ice yeah. in my tongue. Um, anyway, yeah. Go ahead. So let's uh, let's get to the next scene involving Ruth Ann and Walt, which is going to be them traveling down the road. There's a lot of conversations of Ruth Ann being really concerned about these two uh, containers, display cases, entirely. things, yeah. display cases. They call yeah, them that's cases. A word. That's like the only way they term them in this episode. I call them display cases in my notes. I think best way to describe yeah. them, I guess. They're really con- well, Ruth Ann is really concerned with them. And you can see that Walt is being very accommodating. He's always saying yes to what she wants. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but then ultimately, uh, I believe like Ruth Ann left the truck in a certain mode and it's not supposed to be in that. <laughs> uh, and their truck breaks down. Yeah. Well, just to underline what you're saying, like Walt is being accommodating. Ruth Ann is taking a detour to avoid 18 wheelers. She doesn't want any like rocks kicking up and breaking the glass of the display case. And Walt is, as you said, accommodating, saying yes. He's just happy to 
enjoy a, a nice a nice day for a long drive. He says he's thoroughly enjoying the good conversation and the fine company. So just being sort of a charmer here. And uh, that next scene that you're talking about is the car starts smoking. Uh, Walt can hear that there's probably something wrong with the engine. Ruthann can't even park the car. Like she can't even get it off. I don't think she can even turn the engine off. It just eventually sputters out. We learn that she was in low gear this whole time. What was the deal with that? Like she didn't purposefully put it in low gear. Like she might have started in low gear, but then forgot. Or did she? I think it's said she forgot. She forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and it's been, he's like, oh, you've been in low gear since Cantwell? Like this is, you know, no wonder this car is about to explode. We get like a commercial break when we come back, you know, kind of, we kind of get the sense that they're, they're stranded now, you know, like nobody has come through and they're kind of waiting, I guess, for someone to drive through. But at this point they got to start thinking about building a fire because the sun's going to set. Yeah. And then Walt suggested they use the display cases, which (laughs) I thought was like kind of drastic. That's a little because yeah. Okay, well, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm not giving a good sense of the information here, but, like, number one, how cold is it? I know they're in Alaska, yeah. but, like... Well, uh, I, I guess I'll say I didn't think about it in this scene, but earlier in the episode, Joel says, like, he's got no appointments, and he attributes that to the cold weather. So, oh. though it's not clear in the setting like you know sometimes northern exposure is right. like snow this wasn't very snowy but i think on paper in the screenplay it's supposed to be a cold a cold season yeah like if they were like in a blizzard i would understand it's like oh, yeah, yeah the human body can't survive like more than three hours in like extremely cold temperatures this one it looked okay so i was yeah. like why are you why are you going to extreme hibernation mode uh surely y'all can just get back into the truck for a little bit of warmth, but yeah, presuming that these are like life or death situations, Walt has the idea to cut down the display cases and Ruthann would rather go get firewood, even though it's a pretty long distance. Yeah. And Walt accompanies her because at this point, you just think he's just being a gentleman. Yeah. I mean, they also don't have an axe. Like they point that out, like Ruthann didn't pack an axe because she needed the room for transport cases. So all they have is this hammer. I think, I think it's a hammer. Like Walt, has a hammer in his hand. I guess he was using it to check on the engine somehow. I don't know. He's got a hammer. Is that? Uh, what? I don't know. It, it looks like you can still fit an axe. Like, how big is an axe right. take up, honestly? Yeah. I mean, she probably just cleared everything out. She didn't expect that she would need it. But, um, but yeah, so that's why Walt is like, well, we could break up the cases really easily. And that's like good burning wood. The firewood's going to be wet, blah, blah, blah. And there's like such a, it's such a trek out to the, to the tree line to even get the wood. Uh, but that's what they're doing. As you said, they're going to go out there, try to cut down some firewood or gather whatever they can. Uh, let's see. When we get back to Ruthann and Walt, they've got a tiny little fire going. And Walt, he had mentioned something in the previous scene about like the the firewood's going to be wet. Like I don't even have my boots on. So like my shoes are going to get all wet. And sure enough, he's warming his toes on the fire and um, drying out his shoes and socks apparently because they got wet. Yeah, they have a fire going on and Walt is resting and trying to dry up right here. Uh, The interesting thing that we get in this scene is a little bit of backstory about Walt, which I was not expecting. So it turns out that like he worked in Wall Street. uh, Yeah. Very like it's so. (laughs) It doesn't make sense. uh, It's kind of. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of thought that like Walt was like 
sort of homeless. So, (laughs) (laughs) so I don't know if you remember, these are very one-off moments, but there is a moment in that Mr. Sandman episode where Walt talks about like having the dream of his boss who was like a Wall Street exec or something. Do you remember that? Like Walt was working with this Wall Street person and he started having her dreams or something like that. I thought that that was like, I thought that was like within a context of a dream though. Oh yeah. Like that wasn't real life. Okay. Yeah. And then there is another episode, maybe when Maggie is like looking for a house or something, there's some episode where she's asking people's advice and Walt gives like some sort of advice that might be financial And it was just odd to be like, I could be misremembering this. So yeah, I agree. It's pretty, um, it's a pretty odd fit to think of Walt as a Wall Street, you know, shark or whatever. Uh, Doesn't really make sense, but there is precedent apparently in that Mr. Sandman episode, at least um, most recently. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm mostly, I'm mostly interested in how he ended up here and why it appears like he's homeless. I don't know. um, You're talking about how like, you know, they reminisce on the past. She talks a little bit about Portland. So it's like, yeah, she, she, she wound up here in her own way. We have no idea how Walt got here from Wall Street, but he's here now. I guess it's just because it's the way he dresses, I guess. Like in the way he was like chewing sunflower seeds outside like Joel's office. Joel doesn't even have like he's fully most respect for him because like at the end of that scene he's like holy crap I'm just out here talking to this yokel yeah yeah so like Walt has assimilated completely to the to the wilderness life I guess (laughs) yeah but anyway he's talking about uh, trying to eat. Presumably, Ruthann has got some stuff, but it turns out she miscounted the food. So Walt generously says, like, oh, that's fine. I'll just eat the tangerine and that'll be enough for me. Yeah, Ruthann gets a ham and egg salad sandwich. She feels really bad because she, like, was almost certain that she packed more food. Um, But he's like, no, don't worry. I'll take the tangerine. It's fine. The next scene we get with them is the next morning. They're just standing there. They're broken down car in the middle of nowhere. Very beautiful mountains in the background, but uh, but nobody surrounding them. I think uh, either Ruth Ann or Walt says, where is everybody anyway? Ruth Ann reveals that she has some knowledge uh, about this technique that can hotwire the car to start or something like that. She's got like this cheat code or some way to get the car started. And Walt is surprised that she didn't come up with this idea last night. And she points out, well, you know, I had I didn't want to leave my display cases behind. This car is not going to be able to lug them in low gear. It's still stuck. Like, we're not going to be able to get it out of low gear. My, my cheat code doesn't do that. It doesn't fix that problem. But, um, yeah, so she admits, like, you know, I wasn't planning on leaving the display cases behind. You know, she says to Walt, we both thought that someone would show up, so we were just waiting it out. And this really, um, really gets on Walt's nerves like he he seems pretty ticked off right because he had to go through a lot of hoops in order to stay the night with her he had to give up a dinner he had to pretty much get frostbite on his toes and it's revealed that he was secretly doing all this is because he wanted to have a little outing with her he wanted to have a date yeah he basically in this scene you know confesses that he likes her he's like i like you but i like (laughs) i really enjoy that this scene is 
kind of lovely, but it's not like a tender moment at all. They're arguing with each other. Like he's pissed off now. Like he's like, why does it have to come out this way? I like you, Ruthann, but right now I'm so mad at you. Um, I've got a soundbite that sort of illustrates this whole feeling here. We could have been on our way last night back in Sicily. Well, it means I have to leave my cases. This old six-banger won't haul all that weight in low. So that's why. That's why we froze our tails all night. No bedrolls, no flares, offer a bunch of fooled retail shelves. We both thought somebody would be by. I took a shot. A shot? About frostbitten my toes. I got them all, lady, no thanks to you. I even went hungry. Froze my tail off by that stingy little fire of yours. So cold, didn't get a wink's sleep. You sure bit on that free ride to the osteopath, though, didn't you? Osteopath? Is that what you think, woman? I've got the bones of a 50-year-old. Are you blind? Don't you see what's going on here? These are my church shoes. This is my good sweater. Do I have to spell it out for you? I'm interested, Ruthanne. Or at least I was. Interested? And thank my lucky stars I find out about you now before I get all emotionally dependent, traipsing all over Hill and Dale just because I wanted to be with you. So I guess they just figured out that Walt, the actor for Walt, is like a good actor. Like he's just been on the show for a couple episodes and we're like, (laughs) oh, this guy, you know, we should put him in more stuff. I just looked at his IMDb. So the actor that plays Walt is Moultrie Patton. And, you know, he had been an actor before this, of course. Like he did some TV in the 50s, a little bit in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, he's got a couple movies like Free Willy. Um, but he was, it looked like he was always just like, at least in like Free Willy and, and more of like the feature film stuff, just sort of like bit parts. So he didn't, he doesn't really have a whole lot of acting credits for, you know, having started in the fifties and, um, you know, now, now in Northern Exposure. So before this, he actually didn't do like a lot of acting. Um, though, I mean, maybe this is just like what is credited on IMDb. It's possible he did like stage and things like that. I don't know too much about his biography, but um, but it's clear here that he's pretty good. You know, he fits well in in this series. <laughs> you know what? Uh, okay, I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but I don't know why I particularly thought of this instance. Is that uh, I want to say it's like the last book of Harry Potter. <laughs> I want to say my memory is serving me. It's like a scene where like uh, Severus Snape is getting really angry at Harry Potter's mom because he has a crush on her, and uh, ultimately, there's like a line where he says, he fancies you, Potter. He fancies you. And that's like always stayed in my mind for this scene. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about uh, Harry Potter's right, dad right. fancying her. Right. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty much like kind of the same vibes in this scene. Walt is like, I fancy you, Ruthann. <laughs> Jeez. Well, okay. Yeah, he, he says that and she's... More or less is just like, I think she even says like, well, quit your bitching and help me load this, uh, <laughs> load these display cases. But they're on their way back um, and they're still kind of stuffy. I believe the next time we see them is at night and they're driving. Uh, there's like a short, yeah, like, I, I want to say it's like a minute and a half scene where they're still like they're about set for oh right. So he's doing that like hot wire trick, right? Yeah. And then like. 
it, it pulls off and then she has to get into the car and scoots over. She leaves a note behind on the uh, display cases saying like, hey, if you find this, presumably, you know, contact me. <laughs> this is mine. <laughs> right. <Dibs. laughs> and then they take off, which is where it brings us to that scene that you were talking about at night. Yeah, they're driving at night now, almost back to Sicily. I think they, they see some landmark and Walt is like, I bet we could catch K-Bear at this point. Well, like... The weird thing is that I looked up that landmark. It's called Coffee Pot Rock. Yeah. It's a real landmark, but it's like a landmark in Arizona. Mm, okay. Yeah. You know, So go ahead. Uh, the reason it's called Coffee Pot Rock, the one in Arizona, not whatever they're looking at here, is because it looks like a percolator style pot with like a spout. Got it. And it's uh, <laughs> got like slight striations of white and pink. <laughs> I, I thought for like a split second, I was like, did they actually drive to like... Because I, I didn't know <laughs> oh, they, were did they accidentally well. get to Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> I had to rewind to find out where they were, and I was like, "Oh, they're in Contour, Alaska." I didn't have to like drove like some oh, ridiculous. Oh, they might distance. have been really far. <laughs> no, yeah, you know, we talked about this maybe very early on, but there is like a um, there's a thread somewhere online where people try to approximate the location of Sicily, Alaska. Of course, it's a fictional place, but. There's enough landmarks and things mentioned in the series that if you sort of kind of kept track of this and wrote it down, you might be able to piece together where Sicily is. It's um, not a not a super duper scientific uh, process just because there's not a whole lot of clues dropped. You know, you can't really get very precise with that. So I think there does exist somewhere online in like a thread somewhere where someone's like, this is the approximate location of Sicily, Alaska. But I mean, it could be like a big um, radio, like big, big area that it's like, it's possibly here. Uh, but that's just fun to think about, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so Walt, Ruth Ann, they're getting closer to Sicily and we have this silent anger feeling in the cab of this car. Like they're still very mad at each other, but they're just so mad that they're quiet. You know, they're not talking about it. Walt says, let me try to tune into K-Bear. At least this way you won't have to hear my thoughts. Like it's so quiet that Ruth Ann can hear his uh, angry thoughts of her. And they tune in and it's kind of like, you know, maybe some punk rock or something. Not the kind of music that you would think Walt and Ruth Ann would listen to. Though quickly, Chris interjects, you know, he chimes in, he, he, he breaks in uh, with some breaking news to announce Sicily's 844th citizen. As we said uh, earlier, Charles, you said in the in the original report, he reports 843 citizens. Now we have our 44th, 844th, the baby girl, eight pounds, eight ounces, 23 inches. I don't know if he, um, in this broadcast, does he say like baby Miranda Tambo Vancouver or something? Uh, does he I'm name not too it? sure. I don't remember, but that, you know, they're going to name this, this kid Randy as we, we'll get into that plot line very last. Uh, but yeah, this broadcast definitely cheers up Walt and Ruth Ann and Ruth Ann, you know, pulls over the car. Walt's like, wait, is something wrong? And she's like, no, 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 we gotta, we gotta celebrate. And she breaks out the butter brickle, the aforementioned butter brickle. They have a little celebration. I've got a little soundbite um, because Ruth Ann and Walt are sort of like toasting this um, event with the, uh, with the butter brickle. Here's to the baby. Health and happiness, child, and bundles of love. Even if you turn out to be the kind of gal who uh, gets a little too focused occasionally. You know, uh, one who is so busy melting her sugar that she lets the yams burn. 
And if you are that kind of gal, may you find a fella who kind of likes his yams on the crusty side. It means there's probably a fire in there somewhere. A very nice moment. You know, they kind of use this toast as a way, as you hear Ruthann, to sort of talk about, like Ruthann is talking about her own failings here in a way to apologize to Walt. Um, of course, I have no idea what they're talking about, yams or, or burning yams, but uh, <laughs> I think we get the uh, gist. Well, like, I wish that we would have uh, had that one first before we got into Joel and oh, right. Maggie's ball line, because I mean, that's the magic word. It's fire. Fire. There, yeah, that yeah, was the, um, the firewood right the there. That's how they're connecting it. <laughs> Maybe there's a little fire in there, says Walt. Yeah, it's actually a pretty, it's it's very cozy, very pretty, and, you know, Walt still still has the charm there. He's like, maybe, you know, he's going he's gonna to put up with Ruthann. He, he um, you know, forgives her and obliges her to her own personality, you know? Right, which is paralleling with Joe and Maggie's relationship uh, in more ways than just a fire. It's also like accepting uh, their flaws and moving on from there. But all of this culminates into the final plot line. Yes. The biggest one, which is Shelly's birth. Yes, Shelly giving birth to baby Miranda. And we talked about it early on, like sort of the beginning of the episode, how that sets up there. Um, but where we left off with Shelly is the laundromat. So she's going uh, to do her laundry. There's a little girl in the laundromat. And as Shelly calls it, she's playing some barbs, playing with Barbies. Oh, I don't know if you know this. The the little girl in this scene is played by Kaylee Cuoco. Not really sure how to pronounce her last name, but that's um, the lady from Big Bang Theory. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know that. (laughs) So perhaps maybe this is her first role. Definitely a very early role for Kaylee. But yeah, you know, Shelly starts talking it up with this cute little girl. And it's surprising because this little girl's name is Miranda. Well, um, everybody calls her Randy with an I, R-A-N-D-I. Yeah, uh, it's really interesting on two fronts right here. Randy with an I, if you didn't know that it was with an I and you thought it was with a Y, then it kind of sounds masculine when you say Uh, your name is Randy instead of Miranda. And number two, this girl was playing with dolls, especially the Barbie doll, which is again associated with... Uh, what little girls play with instead of what little boys play with mm-hmm. right here. It's, it's kind of going along with that. The ribbons that are on this little girl are actually blue and pink, which are, again, the colors associated whenever you're born. You, you have blue for boy and pink for girl. Mm. So it's very curious that she's also wearing that while her clothing is also like blue and pink right there. So there, there's a lot of like intentional imagery and subtext that's invoking the idea of gender psych here. On a service level, you could say like, well, it's because they don't know what gender the baby is. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. why there's a lot of focus on it. I think that's a valid view. I also think there's a lot of like, I, I don't want to say like deconstruction, but more of like us questioning where the roles are going. I touched upon this earlier in the episode. I don't believe that like they make an outright statement on it. It's just kind of like a kind of like something they just touch upon. Yeah. I'll reveal that more as we go on. In fact, do you want to go on to the next scene? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So in this next scene, we see that Shelly and Holling are preparing uh, the meals for the brick. Um, Holling stuffing a turkey. Shelly's preparing something involving Jello, and Shelly asks Holling if he's ever known anyone named Miranda, and he says, "No, I haven't." And she says, "It's kind of a weird name, isn't it? 
like it's not like weird wear, but like it's kind of weird that we settled on this. Yeah. And Holling says, I think it's a pretty name regardless. I don't think it really matters if you haven't met anyone that's ever had this name before. You know, it hasn't conformed to anything yet. Yeah, she's like, wouldn't it be weird if you like you knew someone named Miranda? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be like especially weird if you met someone named Miranda and it's like you meet her right before you're about to have a baby named Miranda? So she's like almost like wants to talk to Holling about this, but is maybe a little afraid. She's kind of speaking in hypotheticals in a way. But this actually happened to her, I guess, at the laundromat. Right. He, he even says uh, a curious word choice. He says he's trying to get something for her uh, feet, I want to say. It's something for some sort of body part. And he says, you don't want your tootsies to turn blue, don't you? Oh, like the socks or something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Holling's like, I need to go get the, the laundry. Right. So it's bringing up the idea of blue, like the color. Yeah. And Holling is, you know, talking about this laundry, which clicks in Shelly's head. She's like, oh, let me let me go do it. She wants to go get the laundry and she makes an excuse. She's like, well, I put the socks in the laundry, right? Like it's bad luck if somebody else takes them out. That's how you lose socks. I'd never heard of that, but I believe it. Like, that's a new superstition for me. Yeah. <laughs> you put the laundry in, you have I'll, to take it out. I'll incorporate that into my worldview. <laughs> uh, but the next scene, Charles is back at the laundromat, right? Yeah. She's going back to the laundromat where she's asking if there's any little girls there. Uh, she's presumably <laughs> asking this other girl who is turning out to be another girl named Miranda, or she goes by Randy as mm-hmm. well. This is like a, a teenager girl, right? Yeah. There's a lot of like little interesting thing that is happening in this scene. Um, one is that I didn't know this before, but Shelly's wearing a coat that has red and blue being featured throughout it. It's kind of like a flannel-ish coat. Mm-hmm. It's, it definitely looks warm. But again, <laughs> it's red and blue right here. And the teenage girl is not wearing red and blue uh, precisely. It kind of looks like purple. Okay. It's kind of a blend between the two colors. And this girl has an interest in drums, which is kind of what you would associate, um, uh, you know. Like a guy's instrument or something. Right. Uh, You know, despite, uh, I mean, it just just happens to be (laughs) that way. And she frets about having her first period. And Shelly tries to comfort her and says like, no, but like, it's actually kind of cool because this only happens to women. You're a woman now. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing that's like really neat. And that like we're bonded together by this. It's a threshold for this girl, this teenage girl to have to go transition from a girl to a woman. And it's really curious that she's really into the drums. Yeah, that's definitely, yeah, there's definitely that motif at play of gender boy, girl with the baby uh, you know, the the expertise that Maggie shows Joel and vice versa. And now here with Randy, you know, has that name with that can mean perhaps one thing with a Y, something else with an I. And drums for a girl? That's crazy. No, <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But yeah, uh, those sort of gender norms. Um, they're definitely at play here, even if that's not what the message of the episode's about. I think that's a strong uh, motif underlying all these things. And, um, sorry, I just wrote down, I love fake band names that are in like movies. And let's see the, the girl, the band that the girl is in that, uh, Randy is in is called ice fog. She says me, Raul and storm. We're going to hitch down to the Kodiak jam fest next summer. And, uh, 
the the mom and Shelly is like, no, that's silly. You don't want to do that. Like that's uh, you know, you're young. That's like foolish. You're not gonna like hitch down there. It's that's that's a nightmare. And uh, Randy gets a little mad. She's like, well, you know, at least we didn't screw the world up. You know, we didn't cause <laughs> pollution and war. She's like blaming the older generation. Totally uh, right. Still, <laughs> like, I'm not a parent, but I would definitely never allow my child to hitchhike. Are you, like, yeah. it's so dangerous. Like, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Um, is that the, does like Randy storm out or what happens? Yeah. yeah okay. She basically storms out. And the next thing that we're going to see with Shelly is at Cray Bear. She's going to talk with Chris about the ideas of time. And Chris kind of relays to her, like, Personally, for him, he thinks they're all just constructs. Like, yeah. he thinks that the past, present, and future all fold into each other. That, like, you're simply living at, like, one point, and any of those points could be construed as either the past, or present, or the future. So, to him, he thinks that time travel could be real, and, uh, you know, the, the people that Shelly are meeting are presumably her, her future child. Yeah. Chris points out, uh, most Native Americans don't think of time as linear. All moments are happening all the time. He brings up the theory of relativity. If you move far enough, fast enough, you're going to bend the whole situation, as he calls it. You can bend time. Shelley says, why would someone time travel? Like, why? Because she's thinking about her own experience here with this Randy. Like, why is Randy appearing to me? Uh, Chris suggests maybe you could play the stock market. Maybe you could try to take over the world. Shelly asks Chris, what would you do if you could time travel? And he says, I'd go back in time and just let them know that everything ended up okay. And that's really comforting to Shelly because now she feels like this is just a way to show her that everything's going to work out all right. Of course, Chris says, you know, there's, you know, there's uh, the Holocaust and there's uh, AIDS epidemic and things like that. So like, there's a lot of troubling things, but it all, it's all going to work out. They're going to, they're going to work through it. So ultimately it is comforting for, for Shelly to hear this. She tells him, thanks a lot, Chris. And he says, you're welcome a lot. I thought that was cool. <laughs> I think that's really selfless of Chris to want to time travel and warn people that it's going to be okay. Like yeah. the future will still hold steady. Yeah, it's arguably uh, extremely bleak. He was talking about the Great Depression and it was leading into World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, World War II hadn't happened, but like you were rumblings of like what was going on over in Germany. Uh, you had just gone through World War One. Like it's a tumultuous time. And I think that. I don't know. I just think it's really nice that that's what Chris would spend his time travel occasion on. You know, obviously in Shelly's case, she would want to use it to comfort her child. But for Chris, he wants to comfort like humanity. Yeah, it's very selfless, very peaceful, very zen. So we can see that that philosophy in Chris for sure. It makes sense. And it's uh, it's very nice, very nice thing to do, Chris. Thank you. So we get another scene with, well, we don't go back to the laundromat yet, do we? No, we're actually back at the brick. It's a very short scene, but essentially what's happening here is that Shelly says that she needs to go back to the laundromat to finish out some like, last minute things. It doesn't really matter what exactly it is. I think it's like blankets or something like that. Well, it's like Shelly is also not ready for the delivery because Joel's there and he's like, all right, y'all ready today? Like we're going to leave at four o'clock sharp. You right. Know, be there. That's, that's the important part. And yeah, so... Uh, Shelly's feeling nervous about this. I, basically, she's like, I'm not going to, I'm not ready to deliver this baby until I can see Randy one more time. Um, and 
as we said before in that scene with her and Hauling, like she's kind of speaking hypothetically and she's trying to not make it um, sort of a reality, at least like to them. She doesn't want to talk to them about it. Um, maybe she's afraid like she's going to sound crazy, which, you know, it does sound kind of crazy, though. You know, she can talk to Chris about that stuff, I guess. Um, still hypothetical, but he's he's got maybe more of an open open mind to that. But yeah, as you said, she's got, uh, oh, it's a, the blanket that she's trying to pick up is what she calls her new receiving blanket. She says, you know, whenever Miranda's born, you don't want her to be wrapped up in a crummy old blanket. Like I got the, right. the new blanket ready at the laundromat. Please let me just go grab that. Joel can sense that something strange is going on, but he's like, all right, Shelly, whatever you got to do, just make sure you're on that plane at 4 p.m. Right. And then Shelly goes to the laundromat to meet the last Randy, which is going to be the grown-up version of Randy. This one is wearing a pure pink sweater. Mm -hmm. That is a distinction between the other two Randys. Uh, The curious thing is that this one has an ambition to become a cheerleader, which is a female-dominated role. I think that it's strange how it went in this direction. I'm not saying it's bad, but... It it went from like playing with dolls and then playing drums and then wanting to become a cheerleader. I'm not exactly too sure of the statement that they're trying to say here. I think it's like kind of intentional at this point. Now that we're like talking it out loud, like the Mm -hmm. color choices that are having all three Randy's wear, how it went from red and blue to like purple to pink. Now Um, she even dons a blue denim jacket. When she leaves, mm-hmm. I know that women can wear denim jackets yeah. as well, but um, just the color symbolism here. Yeah, the the blue denim jacket clashes with the pink, and I think that we'll talk about it more when we get to it. But maybe what they're trying to say is that despite what gender the baby it is, it doesn't matter because it's going to decide its own fate. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to also say too, like. This is sort of a faded thing as, as if we can, because uh, as we learn in this scene from the more grown up Randy, this young woman, Randy, she tells Shelly that she was born above a bar. So, and this does happen with Shelly's Miranda because uh, she ends up going into labor before four o'clock, like not to, you know, she's supposed to go take this plane at four to get to Anchorage to induce the labor. No, it's happening now. So it is faded, I guess, just like this young woman, Randy and Shelly, who's going to give birth to Miranda above the bar and the brick. So yeah, even though this is sort of like faded here, I would also say that this is just Miranda as a young woman. This isn't Miranda five years after that. So we're noticing a shift from Barbie dolls to drums to cheerleading. I think it's also pointing out that, you know, all genders have these, you know, we all have these traits within us and we can go uh, back and forth, you know, or, or, you know, it's not necessarily a back and forth even. It's just uh, a pool of traits. Mm. So that that is yeah. one way to look at it. And they're demonstrating it by having these back and forth toggles, I guess. Mm, I like that. I like where you went with that. Uh, This Randy, you know, kind of bids farewell. She's saying like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's really curious. I'm about to start my brand new life. And today's my birthday of all things. (laughs) And that's a curious word choice. Brand new life. We're going to see that come into Mm. action in the very final scene. But it's a very touching moment because 
Shelly says like, hey, you know, can I hug you like before you go? <laughs> you know, this might be our last time. And she, they hug and then she departs. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? Something in this scene is uh, Randy says that she has a little brother named Jared. So I wonder oh, if that's yeah. going to come true as well. <laughs> Obviously, even further in the future, but... Yeah, Randy departs, and the next time we see Shelly is when Maggie and Joel are stacking the firewood, she, like, runs up to them, and she's like, look, I, I, it's happening now. The delivery, it's time. It's time for, for the baby. So uh, as it is foretold by the time-traveling um, laundromat, you know, Randy, they're going to deliver the baby upstairs in the brick. And it's a pretty fun little environment because... Um, we get Shelly, you know, I guess they've got Shelly upstairs and Joel comes down with hauling to sort of make an announcement. Um, he involves everyone in the brick to like lend a hand. And it's very cool community coming together. Like he, he speaks to Marilyn. He's like, look, uh, go run to my office, get the infant back. And he um, implores the patrons of the bar to start grabbing the materials they need, towels, a wash tub. And he even jokes a box of cigars for hauling. Like, I think he puts his arm around hauling maybe, uh, but just gesturing to hauling that, yeah, you're a father. You're going to be a father. This is, this is the, this is the time to break out the cigar, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I don't know why it's like a very subtle moment, but Chris is the person that's delivering the news. Yeah. Um, I thought I was going to do a rule of threes punchline because he comes down two times and he's like, oh, she's, um. She's having contractions. Oh, she's, it's coming closer. And on the third time, I want to say that's the time where he says like, it's a baby girl and the whole bar explodes in happiness. And Chris doesn't join them. He, he just, he has a smile on his face and he just sits down. He's kind of like just, just absorbing all the things that are happening. I think that's such a good call in both like in this episode and also just as a, a a human thing. Like, it seems like, like something I would do. Like, (laughs) what, like. You can't be joining the crowd. It's too much energy. You just got to like sit there and just watch. I will say it is such an amazing uh, direction. This might also have to do with the script too, but the way the birth is handled is, you know, it's like we're in a delivery room, you know, we're upstairs in the brick, but it's chaos. You know, Ed is like filming the delivery. I think at one point they're like, hey, Ed, hold on, like chill out. And Chris is running back and forth from upstairs to downstairs to give the play-by-play report, you know, like crowning, crowning, uh, it's, <laughs> it's happening. And um, another contraction, you know, that, and it's, uh, you know, Shelly's screaming, Hollings there holding her. And just like that, this baby girl is born and it's really impressive and stunning how absolutely quiet everything gets because we have this juxtaposition of the chaos that comes before it. And it just becomes so quiet and still and like everything slows down. It's not even like they're holding on shots or anything, but we just have this feeling of peace. And as you said, I guess that's also represented in Chris's mannerism of just kind of sitting down and taking it in, you know? But God, such a powerful moment. And I would be lying if I said I didn't tear up. I, I think it's wonderful how they're holding the baby, Holling and Shelly. And one of them says, you're just a little itty bitty thing now, aren't you? And yeah, it's just so, so warm and beautiful. Is this the, um, oh, it is. This is where she says like, is she supposed to be blue? 
And, yeah. Uh, the, uh, Joel says like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Like all babies are like it's that totally when they come normal. out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's like the final time they're invoking this image of blue and pink, even though ultimately she is a girl at the end right there. Yeah. It's totally fine to be blue, even if you're a girl. Yeah. I love that. I think, I think, yeah, there's definitely some sort of gender ideas in here right in so episode. i really like that very if that okay i, I know though like we've been speculating a <laughs> yeah. lot on this but if we are headed in the right direction and like that's what the script writers wanted it's an extremely progressive yeah like very well thought out idea very progressive and very understated it's not on the nose and like slapping you in the face like there's not a scene where they dictate that verbally it's just been underlying and all these motifs and finally delivered here in this, uh, in the, uh, in, you know, is she supposed to be this blue? Right. And I think that's, uh, I mean, that's just amazing. If they, if they knew that this is the direction that they are heading to, which I mean. I'd give them the credit. Yeah. I think, I think so. there's like too many coincidences <laughs> yeah. that are happening here. The wording and the colors and like uh, the, the subtext and all that. But yeah, we, we get to the final scene, which is going to be with. Holling and Shelly on their bed together are just marveling at the baby. And uh, Holling says the magic words. He says, like, you got, like, your whole life ahead of you. You got just so much that's going to happen. Yeah. And Shelly, she knows. She knows exactly, like, the trajectory of this girl's life, all of the ups and downs, all of the different interests that she's going to go through, all of the fights that they're going to have, all of the reconciliations that are going to have that follow. It, it's really nice. Yeah. It's very pretty. They joke about her pointy head. Like she's like, is her head supposed to be pointy? It's like Holling says it has something to do with the, you know, birthing canal or something. I don't remember what he <laughs> says. Like her head moves around. Something that Joel said, I think. Um, but they're joking about her pointy head and it's very cute and it zooms out and I like how the sound starts to mix down really, really low. Like we can still hear it, but it's almost inaudible. Like it's purposefully mixed very quietly. Sure. It's like, does a slow fade out and we also fade to black, but yeah, wonderful, quiet ending. Oh, I just noticed that Holling's wearing blue and Shelly's wearing pink. Hmm. There you go. A final, uh, at least uh, we got to say like the costume designer, the production design team were definitely in on it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So got to say pretty good episode. And I'm really curious how Randy is going to play into the future plot lines because it's not like they can ignore it you can't go back to the status quo (laughs) they gotta have a baby in the cast now yeah so this is gonna be really interesting to see (laughs) yeah i wonder if this was like you know i wonder if they had like promos that was like tune in for shelly and hauling they have a baby this episode you know like (laughs) it's really hard I, i don't think any of that stuff is very well preserved but you know, on some of the DVDs, we had like promos, you know, mm-hmm. wish we wish we could see more of that. But I guess if you're like an OG fan and you recorded this uh, show on t- on your VCR, you know, back in the day, that's how I know a lot of people still watch it from like the tapings that they did from broadcast. Though even still, you would just watch, you would just have the episode taped. You wouldn't have all that like promo stuff that happened uh, earlier in the day, earlier in the week, you know. But yeah, very important episode. Um, the title, Hello, I Love You. I don't really know exactly where it fits in. I just Googled it real fast. Hello, I Love You is the name of a song by The Kinks. It's also a name of a song by The Doors. 
So I'm just going to chalk it up to that, that it's, you know, they're taking the title from a song title, which has definitely happened in the past, you know, with a lot of episodes. Do you have any takes on on the title, Hello, I Love You? Uh, I took it at the face value. Like, Hello is obviously an introduction, and then lo- I Love You is a um, a definitive statement right there. So, yeah, basically, like, hello, baby, I love you. It's like meeting uh, meeting Miranda, right? Right. I don't know why I kept thinking about this, but I believe, I don't know anything about programming, but I'm pretty sure that, like, the first thing you learn when you're programming is to get a computer to say, hello, world. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I, I kept thinking on that, how this, how Randy was saying, like, hello, world, here I am. Yeah. Okay, Charles, now is the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, typically someone who has never seen Northern Exposure before, and sort of get their outside opinion on the episode. So this is completely sort of fish out of water in a way. Uh, Today's guest is my good friend, Erin. She's a very talented musician, a filmmaker that I've worked with uh, collaboratively from time to time. So maybe she'll have a cinematic viewpoint in a way. But luckily for us today, we're all in a Zoom chat together so we can all see each other. And while we're not in the same location, uh, we're going to have a little discussion. So, Aaron, can you hear us? Yeah. Hey, y'all. Uh, thanks for having me on. <laughs> thanks for being here. And uh, thanks for watching the episode. And what did you think about Northern Exposure? Yeah. So I kind of mentioned this before, but I'll mention it right now. Again, um, while I was uh, watching the episode, I was taking notes. And I kind mm-hmm. of um, I haven't looked at those notes since I watched it. Now that I'm looking <laughs> at my very top note, my very top note, and this is probably while the intro is happening, is a groovy bass, harmonica, and moose, question mark, sold. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> That's a very, very groovy intro. I, I, I was vibing instantly, honestly. <laughs> it was, uh, believe it or not, it was a quite a big hit back in the day. Like, I think we had a guest. Um, I'll always bring this up. We had a guest who watched the show when he was like in high school and he was like DJing his high school dance and they like play. They were playing the theme <laughs> song to Northern Exposure. Like it was a hit back in the day. Um, but I'm actually interested to get your perspective as someone who, you know, makes music. Yeah. What do you think about the instruments in that song? Is it, it's all kind of Mm -hmm. synthesized maybe. Could you tell? Yeah. uh, So like, um, so like, I don't know so much about like the synthesized element of it, but mm -hmm. I mean, like it definitely has that, like kind of, uh, that groovy bass almost feels out of place. Like, does this take place in like Alaska or is it Canada? I didn't catch that. (laughs) I didn't catch that part. It does take place in Alaska. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So like, uh, I feel like, like the harmonica in particular, um, on top of that, (laughs) that, that bass, I wasn't expecting a harmonica. I don't know what I was expecting, but I was like kind of grooving on the couch by myself at like two. PM yesterday to the to the base and I was like oh my god where'd that harmonica come from uh, yeah. but no it's like it's a definitely a certain sort of like at least like a modern folksy kind of thing like a like a yeah. like a modern like you don't need like acoustic instruments to make it feel kind of folksy and rural you know and I, th- I thought that was kind of int- uh, interesting at the very least for sure yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I think it gives it like sort of like a weird juxtaposition of like what you would expect in like snowy Alaska, it almost gives it sort of like a, I don't know, reggae feel. It's not even reggae, but it just seems yeah. like so much more 
tropical. It's definitely way more grooving when you <laughs> than you would think than you would yeah. expect from something like this. Yeah. Uh, but what else do you have there in your notes? What do you th- what do you would you write down? Um, let's see. I'm just gonna like, skim through them. We're, we'll we'll go through some of these together. Uh, my next one was I miss local radio because it kind of starts mm-hmm. off in the, uh, with the radio guy. He seems like pretty hardcore, like playing punk and stuff on the radio <laughs> in like this small town. What's this dude's deal? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> um, there's like towards the end of the episode when the older couple are driving in their truck and they like tune the radio it sounds like yeah, punk yeah. rock or something <laughs> and like they both yeah. look at each other it's just like nah <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think were there any so um, you had asked me about this Aaron if it was ever available like if it was somewhere you could stream and watch online and I told yeah. you it's, it's never been available for streaming and I think a large the large reason behind that is because um, the this is also a problem with the DVD copies of the series is that they replaced a lot of the original music that was like used in the episode for broadcast. They replaced it because they didn't want to, I guess, pay for the rights and renew the rights to the, to use that music. It's interesting. So it's the music in particular that's holding it back. I think so. And I think they just don't care enough to, you know, buy those rights and make a streaming release. Um, I don't know, you know, today with like revivals, I think it could, you know, make a comeback with all that nostalgia, but, Mm -hmm. um, but there are some pretty interesting like needle drops throughout the series. I'm trying to remember, were there any like were there any in this episode that you recognized? All I remembered from this episode was the punk song, which Just was pretty. Things, yeah. No, it wasn't mm-hmm. recognizable, but yeah. it did stand out at the very least. Yeah, I don't, I don't think this one has any like, you know, big money needle drops or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just trying to remember. <laughs> Oh, wait, wait. I, my next note looked pretty fun, actually. Um, <laughs> so uh, it says, uh, Shelly, first, please get uh, a, med- a medical attention because she was talking about her baby being like several days late. And she's just kind of like, you know, casual about it or whatever. <laughs> and there's a second part of that note. And also couple count- couples counseling, then a younger husband. What's the deal? Like this dude seems like way too old for Shelly. Is that like ever brought up or addressed? Or it's like he seems like 20 years her senior and like there's nothing like they seem to like there's nothing, no part of that that's in their <laughs> dynamic or written into their dynamic you know <laughs> uh it's it's 40 years isn't ollie that's a good point yeah i think oh it's 40 God. years yeah and <laughs> at least in the show i don't know about in real life we've we've probably looked this up before but um but yeah they, this is <laughs> this is like the in the first episode of northern exposure they're together and it's kind of about that um yeah, I would say that is most people's reaction uh, is <laughs> how strange it is. Because I think even some guests think, oh, like at first they thought Holling was Shelly's dad. And then mm-hmm. they like start kissing and stuff. Yeah, like, oh. that was my, my my stuff too. But like it's so weird because like later in the episode, I feel like it's a very like pivotal moment for them. I don't know because I haven't seen the rest of the show. But like yeah, them yeah. having a baby, it feels like like a really like, you know, something that maybe there's been, they've been building up to for a while. Something that's like, you know, um, I actually cried at that part. I'm skipping ahead in my notes oh, yeah. a little bit. But I weirdly like the, the, the pregnancy or, you know, the, the birthing scene was just like weirdly emotional for me. And I don't know why. He just kind of came out of nowhere. But um, yeah. yeah, it was just like. I don't know. Their relationship just like struck me as strange from every angle. And then like I was crying watching them have their first <laughs> child together. And I was like, OK, I guess I'm endeared. <laughs> like. So my my answer to Holling and Shelley is always um, so Northern Exposure was a very progressive show for the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, they, they try to do a lot of they try to tackle like a lot of 
progressive topics. And I think like magical daughters from the future. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Time traveling laundromats. I think, (laughs) I think one of the, you know, one of those angles is trying to like tackle a May, December romance between like Shelley and Holling. But I don't know if that's necessarily aged very well. Yeah. But used to be in the past, that was kind of like a a specifically progressive thing. Like don't, don't, don't read about your favorite philosopher's opinions in like the (laughs) 1960s. They'll only disappoint you. (laughs) Right. Um, But you know, most of the time it's kind of played for age gap jokes for the comedy Mm -hmm. of it. So you know, it's almost like used more as like a um, a comedic vehicle, but there are moments that I think they do tackle with a lot of grace. And maybe that, maybe one of those is that birthing scene. Uh, so I, I also wanted to ask, like being, being, seeing this for the first time you did, you said like that was kind of a powerful moment. It was and, very emotional. And especially like having the whole community rally around that, like getting a new citizen. Like, I don't think I need a lot of yeah. context for the fact other than like, you know, there are like 800 citizens and they're about to get a new one. Like, it seems like yeah. it's like impacting this town that like, I don't in a way that you just don't get even like back then in most places, you know, like a real communal aspect to like, you know, oh, oh the, 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 the community has a baby now. And something about that, like struck me as like very wholesome in a way that I like, never seen in media before or at least so yeah. earnestly depicted in media like i don't know I, I got caught up in it maybe it was just <laughs> me but I, I got a little caught up in, in, in that moment and that and that was the moment i was like I'm, you know God, you know they're, they're making me cry i'm gonna have to watch the rest of this <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah i definitely uh i was definitely crying i told you charles charles did you uh <laughs> did you have any reaction to that uh <laughs> I, I mean it wasn't like i didn't have tears <laughs> you were like bawling <laughs> I mean that's uh, that makes me sound terrible now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> y- y'all both cried. Cut this out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so now you're just like, did you cry? It's like, uh y- yeah, yeah, totally. Charles <laughs> Charles is capable of tears. He's yeah, he's he's in touch with that. It's uh no, but we <laughs> talked about um that scene in our discussion earlier, just how impressively it goes from sort of chaos of childbirth to stillness and quietness. And Charles, you had pointed out the the way um, Chris, when he runs downstairs, the DJ guy, and like announces uh, it's a girl, everyone's celebrating and he just like kind of like silently like sits down to take it in, you know? Yeah, it's one of those like, I wonder if that was written in the script, if uh, Chris's actor, why, why am I? blanking um john corbett sorry john corbett sorry i was like hey uh, that was a blocking decision by john corbett to just sit down right there um there's like a lot of ways that it could have went i'm really curious as to how they ended up with this particular one where he just lays down and soaks it all in i thought that moment was really neat aaron what did you think about that moment i mean yeah yeah that actually struck me too that was like the um it felt like the i don't know almost like the the catharsis of the scene or like you know the climax of the scene was building up to this one guy's you know reaction to it and he's mm. almost like a bystander in the same way that we are to the whole yeah. thing and kind of like you know overwhelmed with emotion in the same way that we are so it's almost like a vessel for us is you know it's cathartic in that way you know he, he's almost like a vessel for us to to see see how we're reacting in the moment i don't know i i really enjoyed it i I really enjoyed the whole episode honestly (laughs) yeah for sure um let's see what do you think of the joel and maggie relationship so joel i'll guess i'll i'll just go ahead and say this i don't know if you caught on but joel is like the the main yes yeah 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 yeah. the doctor (laughs) 
He's like the main character of the show. I don't know if that was like clear. Oh, no, I didn't catch that at all. It felt like (laughs) honestly, that was one of my questions. My my big questions is like, first is like, who's the main character? And second, like, what is this show actually about? (laughs) Like other than like this show, other than like vaguely just a town, you know, who who is up there. Like I didn't get any kind of sense of like what the rest of the show would kind of, I don't know, uh, or or, like what what it's all like uh, no overarching kind of theme or no, no like point or no kind of like. Uh, like you can't like walk into an elevator and pitch just like all right it's just a it's just a town of people and they got problems that's it man yeah. <laughs> like that's it <laughs> like, you know like you can't like do that anymore yeah so Joel yeah I guess it's so we're in the fifth season now so the show has definitely evolved in a large way it started as mm-hmm. Joel being uh, this Jewish doctor from New York who is transplanted to this small town of Sicily Alaska so that was like the that would have been the pitch. oh was, like, I see small that town. I can see that as like the the pitch yeah totally yeah. totally honestly I I was like kind of iffy about Joel when he was mansplaining stuff like you know <laughs> uh, med, like medical science to to, right. to Maggie but by the end of the episode when he was rolling up his sleeves and delivering that baby I was like swooning yeah. I was like oh my goodness the <laughs> get me a man like this they don't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that you say like he's mansplaining medical stuff because that I think that was such a silly. We talked about it in the episode, but he's like talk. Maggie says like, "Oh, this Indian food gave my aunt uh, an ulcer," and Joel's like, "No, it's not the food that gives you an ulcer. It's like the reaction of." I, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm completely wrong, but I think he's just like saying the same thing she's saying, just in a different way. You know, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like, come on, Joel, <laughs> don't get stuck up on that. Yeah. So yeah, Joel, Maggie, um, their relationship is sort of like a central conceit of the show. And it's been like a will they, won't they for a very long time. Five seasons? Yeah. (laughs) I thought that was like a recent thing. Like I thought they were like, oh, look, they're in the beginning stages of their relationship. Like they're just going on these dates together. (laughs) You're telling me that's been going for five seasons? (laughs) No, no, no. no. So they they are now a couple. Um, But they've been like a will they, won't they for a long time. So now it kind of feels like they're starting to become more of a, uh, a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what'd you think of their, their plot line and their relationship? I bought it. Honestly, it's felt very genuine and very honest. It didn't feel like a, like a scripted relationship. I feel like, um, yeah, yeah. I feel like it was a very kind of honest thing. I, I like, I know people like both of them, you know, and I feel like they, 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 they I don't know. It's very obvious that they have something together and I, I really like them being able to talk to each other about like, um, like how we think it's a competition for them and stuff like yeah. that. I feel like I was picking up on that in just the episode before they even brought that up. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's gotta be something that's also been kind of brewing for a little while in other episodes, maybe. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really well done overall. I like, I really, I, I really bought them as like a, a believable kind of will they, won't they. It's not like heightened to the point of like Jim and Pam or something, you know, from the <laughs> office, but it's like actually like, I don't know. It just feels like two, two, two grownups just trying to like navigate it together, you know? And like, they obviously got some issues, but at least they have like a, a line of like open communication between each other that like, you don't really see a lot. Like most of like the contrivances and conflicts and a lot of these kind of relationships are brought from like miscommunications and theirs are like they can talk right through it you know and I love that about it like it's not fueled from like the conflict isn't from like the miscommunication it's from like genuine places of them like thinking about things differently which is way more interesting way more interesting than just like silly little contrivances that like you could write up uh, in an afternoon you know like yeah I felt grounded in a way doesn't feel like contrived as you said doesn't feel like it was just like cooked up as a script feels real and I think the actors as you're saying you believe it like they have they just have some chemistry they're both they're also probably the best actors in the series or 
they give some of the best performances. They got some 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 talented actors in the show, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should also point out that uh, seasons one and two are only like uh, Lee's going to correct me on this. Uh, eight episode on season one and seven episodes on season two. That's oh, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. That so makes more short. sense. Yeah. When I was thinking like American TV show from like that time, that era, which I'm mm-hmm. assuming this is like late 80s. Right? Uh, early 90s, yeah. Early 90s, so close, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. gotcha, yeah. So it was actually after Twin Peaks then. <laughs> they ran concurrently, but the episode you're watching now, I think, is after the end of Twin Peaks. Yeah. I think it's 94, so. It's funny that we mentioned Twin Peaks, because somewhere in my notes, it was just like, so it's like Twin Peaks without the magic. And then immediately after that, the little girl showed up, and I was like, there's magic? <laughs> there's magic now? There's magic? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, um... Yeah, a lot of guests compare it to Twin Peaks. I think it's just because, well, they both take place in like Pacific Northwest area. It's like it's like a specific slice of Twin Peaks. If you took yeah. like a specific like vibe and then you like expanded on it, you know, like there's not a lot. Of, it doesn't seem like beyond pregnant lady magic didn't seem like to me there was a <laughs> lot of like supernatural elements to it. It was more like story focused than it is mm-hmm. like, ooh, what's weird and happening in this town, you know? Yeah. Also, I mean, it's not nearly it's not nearly as dark as Twin Peaks either. That's so it's it, like, yeah. yeah yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that wholesome part of Twin Peaks that kind of expanded and like stretched out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's just a cherry pie. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. cherry pie. Just, the, just, just leave the cherry pie and no coffee, please. <laughs> Oh, another thing I actually liked about this episode I wanted to mention, um, I wanted to make sure this made it in, uh, was I, I love the normalization of uh, period talk on TV at that time. Yeah. Like, there was a specific conversation about how, you know, how she's, like, growing up, and, like, I don't know, that was really refreshing to me. Like, I, I feel like I'd be surprised if I saw that on TV today, let alone, yeah. you know, early 90s. So I definitely think the show gets a bonus point for that. For sure. I definitely think they've been, like, knocking it out of the park with Shelley's plot lines lately. I mean, in this episode... The, pre- the delivery, the birth of the baby, very well handled. And then we had an r- episode recently, Charles, where they talk about pregnancy and they talk about they talk about it from the perspective of the mothers and also from like the men involved too. So you see both sides, but they really, you know, it's not sugarcoated or anything. Uh, they kind of talk about like the pains <laughs> and the anxiety too, and like the fear of being a mother. Um, oh my goodness, that's our, awesome. Our, our guest on that episode was also very surprised to that yeah. they're doing this in the, on a show in the 90s. You yeah, know? that's awesome. It's like what Josh Whedon, when Josh Whedon wishes, wishes he was doing in the 90s, like actual feminist tele- television. <laughs> you know, in a way, like in a strange way, some of the tone of the show, um, we were talking about Twin Peaks earlier, mm-hmm. also reminds me tonally to like Quantum Leap in a weird way. Mm. Like if you take out like so the sci-fi kind of veneer of Quantum Leap and you just look at like what the meat of most of those episodes are about, it's like really small problems most of the time, like really interpersonal, yeah. like well-defined problems that are like usually fairly low stakes, you know, and you're just like watching yeah, people yeah. like, you know, deal with it and work it out kind of thing. Um, I don't know. It has a, it has a similar vibe. <laughs> I didn't yeah. want to leave it at just Twin Peaks. I feel like that's an easy grab. <laughs> uh, that's a good, that's another good comparison. Yeah, I've, I've always talked to Charles here about how kind of, like you said, low stakes, almost anticlimactic sometimes. Some of the resolutions are anticlimaxes, uh, very low stakes, as you said. Um, I've I've seen a little bit of Quantum Leap. Charles, are you are you familiar with Quantum Leap or? Hi. Uh, I've same, seen it used as like a punchline before, but I've never seen it. 
you, you think, know, like, you know, the reference as a, a joke. Lot of, uh, <laughs> family Guy made a lot of Quantum Leap jokes I, back in the day. <laughs> I want to say it was like from 30 Rock where I okay. heard the Quantum Leap joke. Scott Bakula jokes. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, this is it, like, it involves time travel in some way. Mm-hmm. And I think like the punchline was uh, like one of the characters was also talking to a past self. It was like a very eerily mm, similar, similar to, to today's episode. episode. Okay. And he was saying like, no, I know exactly how time travels works. Like, I know everything about it. It's like, no, you don't. All you did was like watch a couple episodes of Quantum Leap in college. <laughs> 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 well, Aaron, you've already kind of said um, that, you know, you, you enjoyed this episode and the ending made you want to see more. Um, what do you think of this episode as a representation of the series as a whole. We kind of talked about, you're only now realizing this is season five. Yeah. Um, so, so much has happened before, but was anything like confusing, just stepping into it out of nowhere? Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think they're like, yeah, yeah. There are a couple of small things. Overall, I think the tone is very like solid at this point. It feels like they very mm-hmm. much know what this show is. Like, it feels like they're, 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 they're delivering these things out of like almost a factory at this point. They know exactly <laughs> what like an episode of this needs to be. Cause yeah. I didn't feel like anything was like wasted in particular, hmm. but like, yeah, I think there are only like a few, t- a few tiny like tonal things that like jumped out like, Oh, this is magic. Like that came out of nowhere. It's like small town vibes, <laughs> like interpersonal relationships and you know, t- casual, time travel but you know i kind of chalked it up to just like as a, more of a device like a dramatic device than it like an mm-hmm. overtly saying like oh this is definitely happening this is probably just more of like a way of like getting out what she was feeling than like i don't know it, it, like yeah. I don't know. It, it's less of like you know she was actually experiencing some time anomaly which is like they tried to explain <laughs> that away too and that was probably like my least favorite part of the whole episode there like there's probably like the most egregious tiny whiny like explanation i think i've ever heard in anything before it was just like you know Einstein's theory of relativity if you move really fast and you know, like you're going in the future and everyone else is in the past those laundry machines are spinning really fast <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. anyway that's totally possible that a completely unrelated thing that happened to you because of what yeah. I just said <laughs> But like only a tiny, like a few tiny things like that. And I feel like, especially for a show of its time, it's extremely watchable. Like the cinematography is very nice Mm -hmm. and it's very like, oh my gosh. And like the storytelling is just very, very like uh, simple. I just, I'm a a sucker for really simple, just like two old people talking around a fire because their car broke (laughs) down on the side of the road. Like I'm so Uh, about that, you know, (laughs) or like that was such a sweet little plot line too. Like whenever he was like, you know, why do you think I came all the way out here? Uh, yeah. You know, to, 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 to freeze my toes off because <laughs> yep. I'm interested, you know, and just like stubborn old people. I don't know. And like there's a lot of dichotomy in that, too. Just like, you know, a, a new young life being brought into the world and like two older people finding love and, yeah. like, and, and like finding connection over that, you know, through the radio. And then in the middle yeah. of it, you have this like punk rocker mother who's just like... <laughs> They're just like freaking like playing like, you know, British invasion over the freaking radio of this small town and nobody wants to listen to it. But they they keep giving them airtime. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. It's just like I love the through line. I love the vibe. And I kind of even enjoy the peaks and crests and valleys of the weirdness along the way. The stuff that stands out. Like I'm almost here yeah. for it, you know? Yeah, there's definitely some weird like magical realism in many episodes. Um, and then there's like some like mystical mysticism with the. Uh, sort of the Native Americans and uh, mm-hmm. one of the characters is now a witch doctor in this season so are <laughs> oh training goodness. to be a witch doctor <laughs> so they, they kind of get a little um, 
a little goofy here and there, but I think, as you said, it's kind of, they use it as a dramatic device, more as it yeah. being um, a reality or something. Yeah. Uh, it's not like, it's not like uh, Sicily, Alaska is like Area 51 or some like mm-hmm. weird, uh, the Hellmouth or something from Buffy. It's just. Uh, yeah. I've also been watching a lot of shows <laughs> kind of from this area, like yeah. from this era, like Buffy, X-Files, Twin Peaks, uh, King of the Hill is a little bit later than that. <laughs> but um, like I've been going through a, like a 90s binge lately and it feels like this, um, this was like perf- perfectly slotted in there, mm. honestly, for those like early 90s vibes, early yeah. 90s, late 80s vibes. But um, it was honestly unlike any of that too. So maybe it's just because I've been watching all of that super natural stuff in particular while I was able mm-hmm. to take that like really like little you know like uh, a small dose of like supernatural timing time or whatever you want to call it with like a grain <laughs> of salt you know because it's like not it doesn't it's not beating you over the head with like you know what if time travel was real it's more just yeah. like what if you know you could see who your per, who your daughter's gonna be before before she's a person you know like yeah. that, that's, that's kind of like a beautiful thought more than it is like a you know a, a scientific like quandary or like question you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I don't know yeah it seems like the focus is on the heart not on the head in this show for sure <laughs> definitely and you kind of said it before like you love that the town all comes together. That's a big part of the show. And I think why people at the time would tune in is -hmm. because it's quirky, it's funny, but in the end, like whoever you are, you can go to Sicily and you will be accepted and people will, it's kind of some guests as well have also criticized it as being like way too idealistic, but Mm -hmm. I think that's what they wanted in the nineties. And I think we still want some of that today too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, that's Hello, I Love You. And uh, Aaron, thanks for joining us, sharing your notes and uh, all your thoughts on the series. It's a real pleasure to be able to like Zoom this together and and discuss it together. Um, but before we sign off, I wanted to uh, give you a platform. Do you have uh, anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, totally. So I've actually been working on some music for the last like half year. So me and my friend Stephen Hansel are part of a um, kind of alt pop, um, alt art pop kind of thing called Dull mm. Shooter. You can look us up on SoundCloud. We have our first single dropped only a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be dropping the rest of the EP sometime next month, like later next month, late in April. So you should look out for that. Um, nice. And yeah, you, you can check me out at, at Dull Shooter Band on Twitter. Thank you guys so much for having me. This is so great. Uh, Lee, you're going to have to send me the rest of the show now yeah we're gonna have to, <laughs> you're a new fan it'll, yeah. it'll slot right in as you said with your 90s uh your 90s binge it's perfect um, yeah but yeah no uh yeah we're gonna go ahead and link that single in the episode description if you'd like to hear it and then of course like we'll be uh tagging you on twitter and such so oh, thank um you. yeah definitely check out aaron's music as i said i've worked with her before and uh I, the last thing i could think that we worked on together was like a very short time limit, like we had a very short amount of time to make a short film and yeah. you cranked out uh, an original <laughs> compo- composition music so quickly. And I was just like, like 12 hours without sleeping. <laughs> but it's kind of like, I was so blown away. Just like, wow, this is not only oh, it's just funny like, that you mentioned that, but I actually have like a small, like 10 second clip of one of those scores hidden in one of the songs on the Dole Shooter EP. <laughs> it's like a, yeah, I'm going to have there. to listen yeah. for it. That's <laughs> oh, awesome. it's, it's buried in deep. You'll have to tell me where it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll have to find it somehow. Um, but yeah, super talented, super great work. I'm excited to check out that single and uh yeah it'll be in the episode description uh i guess we can sign off here charles so we'll be back next week with season five episode 16 it's called northern hospitality 
Um, normally now I ask Charles to make a prediction because he's never seen this episode. What you think might take place in this episode called Northern Hospitality. Uh, Aaron, if you have any guesses, you can chime in as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, Northern Hospitality. I mean, that's definitely a play on Southern Hospitality. Mm-hmm. I would guess that... Um, let's go the opposite of that. Let's say that, like, maybe Joel is realizing that, like, certain townsfolks don't have, like, the same affinity with each other. It's like mm. a really strange guess that I'm doing right here. But, so like, the opposite uh, of hospitality, you're saying? Yeah, okay. yeah. So kind of like a strange take, uh, like an opposite. Yeah, I guess if they're going to be talking about hospitality and, like, welcoming, the welcoming quality, you have to, you might talk about both sides, too. So there might be a... Might be some distancing going on. I don't know. Well, okay, Charles, uh, we'll talk about that next week. I'll see you then. Okay, I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Aaron for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.